Amanda, remember that time that George Eliot was the least successful catfish in history? And welcome to Remember That Time, an historical podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Webb. And I'm your host, Anna Webb. And this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out about their favorite moments in history. And today, we're talking about George Eliot, whose name was not George Eliot. <laughs> Excellent. I cannot wait. We'll get I know there. very little about George Eliot, so this should be <laughs> fun. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting story. <laughs> Uh, but before we get into it, would would you like a drink update? Of course. I'm having an Ace Perry Cider. Mm. Mm. I had an Ace Guava Cider the other day. What? Yeah, it that was sounds delicious. Amazing. It was on tap at a, a restaurant in town, and it was so good. That sounds so good. It was really good. Well, that's not what I'm drinking. <laughs> I'm drinking water. <laughs> Classic. Classic, classic me. All right. Well, I'm in a different recording setup today. So yes. I've already um, hurt myself once just because I'm not used to the space. <laughs> when you stepped away for a second a minute ago, like when we weren't recording, I like hit my foot. So oh, I'll, no. on the recording, when you're editing, you're just going to hear me go, ow. <laughs> Excellent. So we're off to a great start. Um, <laughs> but let's let us press on. Yes, please. Let's discuss author George Eliot, whose actual name is Mary Ann Evans, mm. and she is a woman. Yes. And she is born November 22nd, 1819, in Nuneaton, Warwickshire, in England. You crushed each one of those words. Thank you. Uh, those are ones I'd heard before. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> Uh, so she's the third child of Robert and Christina Evans, and she has two older full siblings, mm-hmm. uh, Christina and Isaac, and she also had younger twin full brothers, but they died a few days after their birth mm. in March of 1821. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also has two half-siblings from her father's previous marriage. Um, Robert and Fanny. We won't hear any more about either of them. Great. <laughs> just, just knowing that they exist. We're just getting the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so her father works for a wealthy family. He's the manager of the Arbury Hall estate mm. for the Newdigate family. Newdigate? Newdigate? I don't know. Um, in Warwickshire. And Marianne is actually born on the estate ah. at South Farm. Cool. Also, she's usually known as Marion, like one word, like they shorten ah. her name. So I'm going to refer to her as that for most of it just because it's easier. Sure. Um, so in 1820, the family moves to Griff House, which is between um, Nuneaton and Bedworth. Um, Marion is a pretty intelligent child. She reads a lot. Um, I found this quote interesting. Uh, because she was not considered physically beautiful, 
Evans was not thought to have much chance of marriage, and this, coupled with her intelligence, led her father to invest in an education not often afforded women. Oh my god! She wasn't very pretty, but she was very smart. So let's educate her. Because if she's not going to get married, she might as well have an education. Or what else is she going to do with her time? Oh my gosh! (laughs) So, from the ages of five to nine... She boards with her sister Chrissy at Miss Latham's school in Attleboro. Um, there, all of these school names are just the names of women because I guess it's just how those boarding schools work. Yes, yeah, that's I a thing. <laughs> yeah, and then from the ages nine to thirteen, she attends Mrs. Wallington's school in Nuneaton, and then from thirteen to sixteen, she attends Miss Franklin's school in Coventry. While she's at Miss Wallington's school, she is taught by a super, like, evangelical governess, Maria Lewis. Interesting. And then when she goes to Miss Franklin's school, um, I'm sorry, did I say Franklin the first time? I don't actually know. I've, I've lost my place. Miss Wallington, Wallington's school is where she's taught by the evangelical woman. And then she goes to Miss Franklin's school, and it's more of a... It's conducted by the Bap- the daughters of the Baptist minister in town. So there's less evangelicalism when she gets there. Um, so it's a little less strict. Mm. Um, and she also, while she's there, has lessons in reading in French and Italian. And then after age 16, she's mostly self-educated. Okay. So That's not terribly uncommon for, for girls who are at all educated. Right. I feel like 16 is usually when their formal, quote unquote, formal education usually stops. Around this time, yeah, yeah. for sure. So because of her father's position at the estate, she has access to the Arbery Hall Library. Ooh. So she does a lot of reading there. Uh, um, very Belle and Beauty and the Beast. Just Yeah. <laughs> Big old library. All for me. Uh. Except apparently she's not pretty. So <laughs> who knew? Her so name I does not mean beauty. That. that is no. so wild. Her name does not mean beauty. <laughs> Um, she is heavily influenced by religion. Early I'd in her say life. so. I would say so. She's brought up in a low church Anglican family. So low church refers to like a wing of the Anglican religion that includes people who put a little bit less emphasis on like ritual and the sacraments. It's like what we would refer like this is it's not more like protestantism well and also not completely accurate but it's like you know the christmas and easter only church people are people who just like go to church every now and then and it's not kind like a of. huge part of their lives you know what i mean not yeah. a perfect analogy but sort of similar they i don't put know less authority in the clergy sure okay. so that's less of an influence on their life but her her father is very religious um, so in 1836, when Marion is 16, her mother dies and she moves home to basically keep house for her father. Okay. Um, and when she returns home, her father, um, allows her to have lessons in Latin and German. So now she's got French, Italian, Latin, and German. Amazing. Um, and then in 1841... 
when she is 21, her brother Isaac gets married and he takes over the family home. Mm -hmm. And so she and her father move to Foles Hill, I think, um, which is near Coventry. Cool. They, They just refer to her as being in Coventry during this period of her life. Okay. So while she is there, uh, Marion becomes friends with Charles and Kara Bray. Um, Charles Bray is a wealthy ribbon manufacturer, and he's known as being, like, a, a radical, like, free-thinking dude. Marion, at this point, is starting to, like, feel those feelings of religious doubts. Mm. Um, and she at this time in her life, becomes friends with the Brays, who are also not super religious. Um, And the Brays' home at Rose Hill, Rose Hill was the name of their home, was, it becomes known as a place where people come together and have, like, debates and, you know, they talk about radical ideas. yes. And it becomes known as the Rose Hill Circle. That is such a thing. Yeah. Like, I I can think of so many people where it's like, and their group of friends all got together at this house and they got a nickname because they got together at this house and did whatever they do, write or drink or whatever they're They're doing. They're just making a club. It's just a a club. It's a club. But it's it's also just like, it's your group of friends you don't have to name yourselves. (laughs) Right, but they do it because they think it makes them sound prestigious. (laughs) Yes, yes. So when she attends the Rose Hill Circle. She meets a lot of people like Robert Owen, Herbert Spencer, and she meets Ralph Waldo Emerson there. Wow. Um, about town. Yeah, yeah. And there she starts to learn more about liberal and agnostic theologies. So she's distancing herself from religion a good bit. Sure. Um, Charles Ray actually publishes some of her earliest writings um, in his newspaper called Mm. the Coventry Herald and Observer. And actually, while she's there, I can't remember whose work it was, but she like translates someone else's work. So she does a lot of that kind of thing. Sure. So as she starts questioning her faith, her father is not a fan. Well, they yeah. have a big old fight. Um, and he like threatens to throw her out of the house, though he never actually does. Um, she tells him that she like doesn't want to go to church anymore. They have a big old fight. And eventually she agrees to continue attending church, like to please him. But on her time, she's like allowed to do whatever she wants. Like that's sure. the agreement they come to. Um, and she does live with him until his death in 1849. So she continues doing that wow. until he dies. And then five days after her father's funeral, she goes to Switzerland with the brace. <laughs> she was like, I'm out. And she decides to stay in Geneva on her own. And she stays there for about a year before she comes back to England. She does a lot of reading and such over there, too, like finding new texts and Sure. Learning new things. If, just uh, imagine just like traveling to another country and just deciding 
I'm going to stay here. I'm going to vacation here for a year of my life. A luxury I can Imagine just having the money to do that. Now or then. Imagine imagine being able to travel. Yeah. (laughs) We can't do that anymore. Imagine being allowed into other countries. (laughs) Wild. Not for Americans right now. Sorry. (laughs) So... In 1850, Marion moves back to um, England. She moves to London with the intention of becoming a writer. Here we go. While she's there, she stays with a publisher named John Chapman, um, who I'm pretty sure she has an affair with, but I didn't read a whole lot into that. (laughs) Um, Love that. You know, it doesn't really matter. Um, And he had recently purchased a campaigning left-wing journal called the Westminster Review. Okay. So she writes for it for about a year, and then in 1851, she becomes the assistant editor. Of Good the for her. Um, and so uh, most of her writing for the journal is about her views on society and, like, the Victorian way of thinking and how she didn't agree oh. with it. The Victorian way of thinking is really something. Yeah, she's not she's not a fan. Well, you know. Um, <laughs> she's very sympathetic to lower classes. She doesn't like organized religion. Um, and actually that she had said, I don't remember if I put this in my notes later or not, but I thought of it now. So I'm going to say it now. <laughs> she like had a problem with a lot of female writers of her day because they kind of wrote about nothing in her opinion. Like, mm. I don't think that that's true, but like, that's what she thought. Like she wanted to be writing about, like she wanted to be making like critiques. She wanted to be writing criticism. Sure. You know I mean? Okay. Yes. Um, and although Chapman was officially the editor, she, she does most of the work on the journal, shockingly enough. Who's surprised. <laughs> um, and she contributes a lot of essays and reviews um, and she writes there until 1854, um, which is when she stops working for the journal. That particular publication. Yeah. And w- female writers are very common in this time. It's not like this is new territory, but being an editor of a literary magazine is pretty new territory for a female. And I think a lot of female writers at that time were kind of kept in a box. Totally. So you can write, but only if you write about this. Or only if you write this type of thing. Yeah, or or they thought they were. You know, I don't know that yeah. there was... I mean, society is kind of holding them back from it. But also, like, they can. They just... At this point, they just don't. I think a little bit before this point, they couldn't. Mm-hmm. But now, in, like, the 1850s, like, they could. Yeah, sure. Um. Anyway, we'll get back to that. So, from 1850 to 1851, Marion attends classes in mathematics at the Ladies' College in Bedford Square. Nice. Which later becomes known as Bedford College in London. Sure, sure. And then in 1851, Marion meets the philosopher and critic George Henry Lewis. And they begin living together by 1854. They're in, like, a very serious relationship. hmm Lewis is married. Okay. To a woman named Agnes Jervis. And, sorry, my watch just buzzed two times and I don't know why. <laughs> that was weird. 
anyway, um, and it's an open marriage. So they both have relationships outside of their marriage. Huh. Together, George and Agnes have, I read in one place, three children, and then I read in another four children. So I'm not totally sure, but they have kids. Um, and Agnes has at least four children with another, with her lover. Wow, that is who, interesting. Who is also married, I'm pretty sure. That is so interesting because it was not uncommon for people who are married to be in other relationships with other people. That happened all the time. It was It's uncommon for that to just like be... For them to talk about it. Open which they and did. accepted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is very rare for them to, to like... To not be like, oh, we have affairs and we're they're cheating on each other. To just classify the status of their relationship as an open marriage was mm-hmm. not really common no. in the 1800s. And that's really interesting. Yeah. So in July of 1854, Marion and George travel to Germany. They sort of treat it like a honeymoon because they consider themselves to be married, even though they're not. And right. he's married to someone else. So I don't really know how that works. <laughs> Um, and Marion, by this point, begins signing her name as Mary Ann Evans Lewis. Huh. And eventually, she changes her name to Mary Ann Evans Lewis, like, officially. Right. Um, after he passes away, which we'll, we'll get back to. That's interesting. Um, but she changes her name. Um, so she continues to contribute pieces to the Westminster Review, at this point, um, though she's not, like, working anywhere officially. And she decides she's going to become a novelist. And she writes a manifesto in one of her last essays for the review called Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. <laughs> and this is where she criticizes, like, the sort of trivial plots that are in con- contemporary fiction by female writers. Mm-hmm. Um, she prefers realism and realistic storytelling. So she's not like a romance gal. She- sure. I think that makes sense based on the people that she spent time with. And the well, sort and of- just based on her own attitudes. And, too. and, the, and the thought movement that she was Yes, around. very much that. Yeah. Very much that. So she then decides she's going to take on the pseudonym George Eliot. Uh, George is for Lewis's first name. So mm-hmm. her fake husband's first name. Her fake her <laughs> not husband. Her and, husband, not husband. Right. And Eliot, because it is, quote, a good mouth-filling, easily pronounced word. I mean, she's not wrong. George Eliot sounds really good to say out loud. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a very satisfying name, I think. Yeah, it, an effective name. Mm-hmm. So in 1857, when she is 37 years old, um, The Sad Fortunes of the Reverend Amos Barton is the first of three stories included in Scenes of Clerical Life, which hmm. is the first work of George Eliot. Okay. And it's published in Blackwood's magazine. Um, the work becomes known as The Scenes, and it's published in 1858 as a two-volume book. Wow. Um, it's very well-received, and people 
immediately start trying to figure out who this person is because uh-huh. they don't know anyone named George Eliot. Right. Um, and at first they think it's the work of like a a parson or maybe the wife of a parson. Interesting. That's interesting that they just created that sort of thought based on well, the subject matter. Yeah, and and I I would assume the the voice and the um, probably yeah the perspective mm-hmm. of the story. Yeah, it's 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 just interesting the way that people will just like figure that stuff out, you know? Yeah. And then in 1859, the first novel of George Eliot's called Adam Bede is published. Um. And there are still, there's still a lot of curiosity as to who the writer is. Mm-hmm. And someone named Joseph Liggins actually claimed to be the author, which eventually leads to Marion saying, actually, it was me. So sure. writing under a pseudonym so that it, it wasn't so much that people wouldn't find out your identity, but like it, they, it didn't last long. Right. And also, she didn't really write under a pseudonym because she thought she couldn't make it as a female because she could have. Mm-hmm. I think it was more that um, she, well, I've read that sh- she wanted it to be separated from her earlier writings, like her essays. Sure. That like makes she sense. didn't want it all lumped together. Yeah. Um. So she continues to write as Elliot. Sure. So she... She continues to write fiction, um, mostly because she has that relationship with George Lewis that gives her a lot of um, credibility. Um, okay, and sure. he he very much supports her and, and her writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a while before they're, like, accepted as a couple in society. Well, yes, because the whole situation was... Right. But here's how they gain acceptance. Oh, boy. In 1877, they're introduced to Princess Louise, who is the daughter of Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria is like a fan of George Eliot novels. So because the queen likes it, they're they're fine. That is so interesting. Um, Another interesting fact about Marion is that when the American Civil War breaks out, uh, she sympathizes with the North, which is a minority stance in England at the time among which the elite. Is interesting because the English got rid of slavery before yeah, the but Civil that doesn't War. mean they didn't support slavery. right? But it's you would think that I don't know. You would think that if it was like the governmental position that i don't know that that was the case i just that's very interesting to me yeah i don't know she also in 1868 supports richard congrave's protests against um britain's imperial policies in ireland sure um and she supports irish home rule all right my that's my girl right there yeah (laughs) home rule baby yeah um, she's definitely in favor of women's suffrage. Again, my girl. Feminist ideas. Get, um, there will be an episode that's just about women's suffrage in England at some point because yeah. I am so interested in it. And I will try really hard not to sing the sister suffragette song from Mary Poppins the whole time, but And no you promises. will fail. <laughs> yeah, no promises. 
1870, she has a very positive reaction to Lady Amberley's feminist lecture that talks about education for women, uh, better occupations, equality in marriage, Mm -hmm. um, child custody. So she's in favor of all of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But she continues to write for the next 15 years as George Eliot. That is so interesting. Yeah. And the last novel, Daniel Deronda, is published in 1876. So she writes as Eliot for quite a long time. I guess that makes sense, is that she started writing that type of, like doing that type of writing under that pseudonym, that even though after she was found out, she still wanted it to be his collective works, even though it was her. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, yeah, that's very interesting, that decision and that process. And, you know, we still read these books. Mm -hmm. And we say they are written by George Eliot. Mm-hmm. Well, we do that with lots of men who have yeah, pseudonyms. That's true. That is true. I, speaking of, <laughs> okay, I highly encourage every person on this earth to watch the series called Poe Party on YouTube mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of reasons. Actually, the full name is not Poe Party. It's like, I can't remember exactly what it is. I'm definitely going to mess it up, but it's something like Edgar Allan Poe's murder mystery dinner party and potluck for friends or something like that (laughs) it's a great Um, anyway it's great they uh, the whole thing is that there are a bunch of different like famous authors in it and lauren lopez plays george elliott who comes to the party as george elliott trying to convince everyone that she's not a woman even though everyone else at the party knows she's a woman so funny and it is so hilarious so if you want to understand like the hilarity of how this all went down in a very fictionalized way but that is still i would probably say pretty true to character yes i recommend watching that an accurate spirit (laughs) yes exactly Plus, it's just really, really funny. Anyway, so in 1876, uh, Marion and George Lewis moved to Whitley, Surrey. But when by the time they're moving there, uh, Lewis's health is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, he dies two years later on November 30th, 1878. Um, and then... Marion spends the next two years editing his final work, which Mm. is called Life and Mind, um, for publication. And then she meets John Walter Cross, who is a Scottish commission agent and who is 20 years younger than her. Um, (laughs) And on May 16th, 1880, they get married. So she changed her name. Yeah. To have Lewis's last name after he died, but then got remarried. And then she changes her name to get again to Mary Ann Cross. Okay. I don't think she thought she was going to meet somebody else. Yeah, probably not. I think it was a lot like the end of Titanic when Rose changes her last name to Dawson. Sure, okay. After Jack, no spoilers, uh, dies in freezing cold water. <laughs> and then... <laughs> You know, then she ends up getting remarried, and that's not her last name anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's that very that vibe. Sure. You know? Yes. It's actually exactly that vibe. I don't know why. I didn't even <laughs> think of it before. So, 
Uh, here's something wild, though. So while Marianne and John are honeymooning in Venice, John falls into a fit of depression and jumps from the hotel balcony into the Grand Canal. He's He lives. But like, what? Oh, my God. I read that and I went, uh, uh, what? Oh, my God. That is wild. So he's okay and they go back to England. But so. is he okay? <laughs> I mean, he lives. Yes. Um, and so they moved to Chelsea, and by now, Marion's health is failing. She has been suffering from kidney disease for a while, um, and she gets a throat infection, like, Oof. shortly after they move. And then on December 22nd, 1880, Marion dies at the age of 61. Sad. Yeah, so she's not buried in Westminster Abbey because she denies the Christian faith. Sure. Also, she had an adulterous affair. Sure, 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 sure. I guess. So Whatever. instead, she's buried in Highgate Cemetery um, in London in the area reserved for societal outcasts, religious <laughs> dissenters, and agnostics. That's incredible. Okay. I want to visit that section of that cemetery so bad. I know. Just go hang out with the societal outcasts. <laughs> yeah. And agnostics. Oh um, but she is buried next to George Henry Lewis. That's nice. Um, and actually, the graves of Karl Marx and Herbert, Herbert Spencer are near her. That's what I'm I saying. I want to go to that corner of that cemetery where all of the non-christian weird societal act i almost did karl marx for this episode and then i decided i didn't have the time to dedicate to the fair research um but anyway um and then in 1980 um there's actually a memorial stone established for her in poet's corner in the cemetery um lots of places are named after her in Nuneaton, her hometown, mm-hmm. birthplace, whatever, um, including the George Eliot School. Again, named after her, but not really, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Middlemarch Junior School, George Eliot Hospital, and George Eliot Road, which is in Full Sail Coventry. That is, that is, that is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. After her, but not after her. Yeah. Um, and there is a statue of her in Newdigate Street in Nuneaton. And the Nuneaton Museum and Art Gallery has a display of artifacts about cool. her. Cool. Wow. So, what yeah. A weird little just entire situation. How odd. <laughs> yeah. So it's a shorter story. And we didn't actually talk much about the works like the the published works sure but you know you can read george Eliot novels mm-hmm. there it's a lot of commentary on class and um you know not uncommon for the times no um but i just fa- i find the life kind of weird and interesting i i am obsessed with the fact that everyone knew that she was george Eliot, but she just continued to be george Eliot. Well, and that's what I'm great. saying about the Poe party yeah, depiction yeah. is that everyone knows that she's not a man, but she continues to try to convince everyone she's a man. And it's very funny. It's great. It is, that, that is an excellent 
take on her life, you know Plus, what I mean? Lauren Lopez is the one playing her, and I don't Ms. know, listeners, if you know Lauren Lopez, but you should. She's she one of the funniest human beings alive. Incredible. Yeah. I was just looking back at my memories of when I met her, like, seven years ago today, uh. and it was amazing. Anyway, that's not really the point. No. Um, History's great, but today is good, too. What's your favorite thing about modern times? There was zero lead-in for it. Welcome to Modern Times. It's a segment of the podcast where we talk about things that we like about the here and now. We haven't done one in a while. Uh, you usually try to do, like, a little bit of a transition, and well, you just, like, I fully... Of, I kind of just remembered we were going to do it. <laughs> And so I just started singing the theme song. Oh, boy. Like, I was looking for something else. Like, I was going to do something Start else. Start talking about something happened. else or make a different comment. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. then the song just came out of your soul, as it always <laughs> it sure does. did. So do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? I-, I can go first. I'll go. Okay. Hit it. Seasonal decorations. <gasps> That's a great one. Specifically, currently, fall because I mm. just got a bunch of fall decorations and put them out. But mm. I just like the concept in general of seasonal decorations. I find them delightful. It's an interesting thing that we do as human beings. It is, because I decorate my house. I have many things in my apartment that I decorate with. I have posters and, you know, flowers and whatever And else. I don't take those things down. No. Nope. I just put seasonal decorations put on top of them, basically. Extra decorations according to the season yeah and i just think it's fun to just sort of like change up your scenery every however Mm -hmm. many months with some new stuff i bought a i bought a a little like cloth bird that had a little pumpkin on its head (laughs) that's delightful (laughs) my coffee table now my coffee table is overflowing with fake pumpkins right Mm -hmm. now I, I like, I really like fake flowers because real flowers make me sneeze. And Same. so I like to just make a, a new seasonally appropriate bouquet. Just, why our not? mom does that too. I love I, it. I came home. I'm at our parents' house right now. FYI, uh, listeners. Um, I came home and our mom is like slowly putting out fall decor. Sure. She had like two things up and she had changed her flower arrangement because she said she like put a couple of things out. And then it didn't make sense for the little fake flower arrangement to have, like... Summer flowers. <laughs> yeah, it had, like, a watering can or whatever it is in it. And she, right. And she was like, mm, I should change that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my favorite. I love yeah. seasonal decorations. I think That's they're a good delightful. One. I like that one. I was genuinely afraid that you were also going to bring that. <laughs> I almost did. I'm a, I am I was so sure when I wrote it down that that was what you were going to bring. <laughs> I almost did, and then I changed my mind, so... Um, so mine is commercial jingles. Whoa, that's good. Because often they're bad. Like oh, they're yes. not good, but yes. they're a thing we all know. Mm-hmm. Like I can I thought of this because I was scrolling through Twitter the other day. And do you remember that jingle I was singing when you were at my house the other day and you were like, "Wow, you know the words." It was the, it's the Idina Menzel one. Oh, yeah, from the commercial that you see all the time on Hulu. Yes, yeah. and somebody else had tweeted about it. And I was like, oh, right, other people know this. Like, it's not just a thing that exists in my head. Mm-hmm. 
And I also love how it happens with, like, local ads. Yes. Because especially in, like, little towns, like, where we grew up, everybody knows the, like, lo- local commercial jingles. Like, everybody knows the, that one lawyer's commercial or that one... We made up parodies. Coffee shop's commercial or whatever it is. Like Yeah, and we would make up parodies of them. Yes. To be silly. Yes. I just like that it, like, national ones are things we all know and we all laugh about. Mm-hmm. And then local ones are also like that. I just, It's a nice you know, little cultural touchstone. Yeah, totally. Just reminds us that we're all just, like, people and we all, for the most part, find the same things silly and delightful. Yeah, and it's, like, a weird thing that people think they need to, like, sing a song to sell a product. All the time I, mean, it's I watch commercials and I go... There's no reason for you to be singing that. It's There's not no that it reason. isn't effective. Because, like, look at what we're talking about. We get the song stuck in our heads. We know what it's selling. Yes. But it's just, like, it's a funny thing that someone came up with that. They were like, yeah. you know what? We could just sing about it. And like, that is so funny to me. stuck in forever, and then they'll buy it. And then we do. Sometimes we'll buy it. Yeah, Sometimes time we definitely will That's so funny. And then I move <laughs> on with my life. Yeah. So that was mine. Every time I see somebody make a joke about, like, um... Uh, the get connected for free, for free, free with education connection. connection. Yeah. That's like something that everybody, every time I see somebody make a joke about that, I like forget that that wasn't just like a fever dream for my thing. childhood. You know? Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. There was, I think there was a BuzzFeed quiz that was like, do you remember all the words to the education connection song? That is hysterical. Yeah. That's so, excellent. I mean, Yeah. It's a weird thing that happens, but I love it. It's a great one, sis. Thank you. <laughs> well, that was a shorter one for me. Um, <laughs> Good. I cannot wait to edit the shorter one because I have zero time. <laughs> I don't think it'll take very long. Nah. Um, so I don't know what it's going to be next time. Me and honestly, either. I just want to give you a heads up, listeners. Uh, um, Amanda is about to start her job yes um as a teacher so it's about to get busy for her and weird (laughs) so some of our episodes might be a little late um yeah our schedule is going to be pretty fluid in the coming weeks because i don't really know what my time's going to look like yet so exactly so thank you for being patient with us when we don't always get an episode out on time we'll do our best but no promises um (laughs) and yeah i don't know what the next one's going to be about but either um, if anyone has any suggestions for what they'd like us to talk about, or if you have questions or comments or anything, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at RTTPod. We're also on Facebook if you just search the name of the podcast. Um, if you want to leave us a review and a rating wherever you listen to this, that would be great. And if you want to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. I almost said your handle when I was trying to say mine. <laughs> That's excellent. I don't know what happened to my brain. Oh, who knows? <sighs> well, hey, next episode is going to be our 50th episode. That's right. Wow. Isn't that wild? Yes, it is. Wow. That's wild. <laughs> well, until that next 50th time, remember that time.